Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments. Now, this is a topic that we do a few times a year. We're very fortunate to be able to offer this topic. It's an important one and one that often doesn't get as much attention as it should, so we're going to try to really give you as much information about this topic as we can today. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and all of your interest in the topic today. We have over 498 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, Singapore, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really are a bit of a global participant, all over the world, actually, and all of the United States from all different regions as well. Today's program is supported by the Aline Rose Memorial Trust, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Supportive Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, and he's author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to address an overview of eye and vision changes related to cancer treatments, causes and risk factors, and sharing information about your cancer and its treatment with your eye care provider. It's my pleasure now to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Hello, everybody, and to our folks in Venezuela, buenas tardes. Um, I'm uh, going to just summarize the, thing, the many things that I've heard over the years from patients and families about eye situations, uh, mostly during chemotherapy and radiation therapy, um, a time when uh, people aren't always focused on, on their eye functioning, but when they can't read, when they can't watch television or watch a movie or have trouble driving, um, this comes to our attention, and it is so helpful to have ophthalmology uh, colleagues who we know and trust and, and we know have some experience in cancer so we can uh, ask good questions or the patients can go for a full exam, which is almost always uh, the best way. Um, the kinds of things that we generally hear about are connected often to tearing. Some folks um, say that their eyes are too moist, that they tear often, but many people say their eyes are too dry. Depending upon where you live, uh, the climate, uh, sometimes even in unexpected places like um, a major city where the uh, buildings have central heat by an old-fashioned uh, furnace, we find that the air is extremely dry inside despite where the city is located geographically. And that can be exacerbated or make wor made worse by a lot of the treatments that we give, not only the chemotherapy, but many of the medicines that we give to control nausea and vomiting and um, to control pain. Um, patients sometimes worry if they have an allergy to um, chemotherapy or um, uh, not necessarily directly from the radiation, but they worry that they're having an eye reaction, and that's something you bring to your provider so they can take a look and see what's what. 
Um, sometimes the tear ducts um, are uh, problematic, especially on taxanes. And again, our um, ophthalmology colleagues are uh, well versed in what to do with tear duct problems, uh, especially when they come to chemotherapy when they work in this all the time. Some of the aromatase inhibitors, um, many folks say that that causes a dry eye as a side effect, but that certainly could be because of the lack of, of hormones, particularly estrogens or, or um, testosterone that is uh, blocked. Some of the newer targeted therapies we're all learning more about, but those can cause particular problems and may be connected to uh, allergic or dry eye problems, so we need to think about that. Blurred vision is probably one of the most common things I've heard of over the years um, with the newer as well as older chemotherapies, but often from the pain medicine or the nausea and vomiting medicine. Um, and it's important that your eyes are um, hyd well hydrated and nice and lubricated, and our ophthalmologist will be speaking a little more about that. Some people worry that their vision is not as sharp as it used to be, and that is also because of many of the medicines that affect um, the uh, nervous control of the muscles in the eye. Um, I often have said before, having good ophthalmology colleagues to turn to, that better way to get a um, vision test or refraction until after your treatment is over because it may change again and glasses are expensive. Uh, but vision changes uh, as far as acuity or sharpness can, um, can be a problem during treatment and often temporary. Um, many many people read a lot of information online, including the relationship of steroids to cataract. Many of our patients are older and may be developing cataracts anyway and worry that the steroids that we give um, sometimes in pulse doses or over long periods of time, especially in patients with lymphoma, um, will affect their cataracts. And again, that's a really good question and a question that our eye specialists can actually uh, check on and with a good exam will be able to see if a cataract is, seems to be getting worse or it's just that if that is the time to worry about a lot of things and um, and people are focusing on that. So again, a good exam is really, really important. Um, infections can certainly happen in any part of the body during treatment, and um, we can all get infections just by rubbing our eyes if we have the hands that aren't really, really clean. That happens to everybody, not uh, their fault, but it happens. And um, because our, our resistance is low during chemotherapy and radiation, uh, this can, again, happen with more frequency, and it's important to be able to get this treated. We don't want anybody to have any damage to their cornea or their eyelids or any part that can be, um, that can be irritated or infected. Um, some patients will complain about the loss of their lashes during um, chemotherapy that causes hair to be lost. Um, it is common. Uh, we often say that lashes grow back. They may not grow back with the same consistency, but they grow back. Um, and again, lashes are really important to keeping dirt out of our eyes um, and variety of other functions. So bringing that up to your providers is uh, crucial. And then getting um, an exam by an ophthalmologist is important because there may be dropsy use or other techniques to be able to keep the eyes clean. 
Um, some people, uh, not, not many people talk about seeing a floater. Seeing a floater can be totally fine and can be an eye emergency. So telling your oncology providers as, um, as the um, uh, first people who need to intervene is important, and then getting uh, you to an ophthalmologist for an exam is crucial. Um, occasionally, I've heard people say that they don't seem, it seems like their, their field of vision, their ability to see to the sides or high up or high down is compromised. That also can be um, for a variety of things. This may be affected, but sometimes it is something more serious. And again, that's a reason to speak up, tell your, tell your cancer professionals, and have them make a referral to make sure that everything is okay within the blood vessels in the eye well as the muscles and the, um, the, uh, the, the nerves that control the eye. The other thing, and on the flip side of all this, is that um, if you are seen by an eye care professional, an ophthalmologist, or an optometrist in some states, before or as you're getting your cancer diagnosed or during treatment, sometimes you are the vehicle of information to them and bring them a list, uh, if possible, of all the medicines you're on, the chemotherapy, uh, if you're on radiation therapy, a little bit about the radiation, where you are, is it the first week, is it the last week, uh, what other medicines you're taking, what pain medicines you're taking, what nausea medicines you're taking, so that they can make a good evaluation and, and they are not in the dark. Um, the information about side effects is important. Uh, crucial to the ophthalmologists that you see so that they can intervene the best. So good communication uh, is, goes both ways, um, from the cancer team to the ophthalmologist and back, and in some parts of the country without a unifi uniform medical record, um, it may be an unfair burden, but patients and families carry this information back and forth, and we want to make sure that everybody has the right information to give the best care possible. I'm going to stop there and turn this back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really excellent. and just a wonderful way to start off the program, reviewing how important all these issues are. And um, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Dan Gumbos. Dr. Gumbos is Professor and Section Chief, Section of Ophthalmology, Department of Head and Neck Surgery, Division of Surgery, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Associate Professor, Ophthalmology, Baylor College of Medicine, Ophthalmology. And uh, Dr. Gumbos is going to address the key role of your eye care provider, discussion of common eye and vision changes, and tips to manage dry, watery eyes, loss of eyelashes, and eye infection. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gumbos. Thank you so much, and thank you for all those who are joining us today from the U.S. and, and around the world. Um, I think it's very important to first sort of take a step back and realize that um, when you are a cancer patient, any potential uh, ocular symptom has an enormous uh, potential of possibilities as it relates to its etiology. This may be something completely unrelated to your cancer care and your cancer diagnosis, it may be an issue that is directly related to your cancer, and it may be a consequence or a side effect of a variety of treatments that you're currently getting uh, or previously have received uh, due to your uh, cancer. And so I can't emphasize enough, uh, number one, uh, 
uh, it's terribly important to be proactive on issues related to your eye and your eyesight. Uh, it's terribly important, as the first speaker uh, suggested, that if there are symptoms, as trivial as you might believe uh, they are, to bring them to the attention of your oncologist and make sure that that's the first step in, in addressing all symptoms. It may be something a little, uh, n no less significant than just saying, you know, my vision's sort of blurry. Make sure that your uh, oncologist is aware and familiar with all symptoms, and uh, not just eye, but, but all seemingly small or large symptoms. Let them uh, make the, be the decision makers as to how significant that is. And in most instances, most medical oncologists will refer you to an ophthalmologist. And I, I would emphasize ophthalmologist because while we have a wide spectrum of individuals who provide uh, eye care, uh, you know, once you carry the diagnosis of cancer and you have all these other uh, potential reasons for having eye problems, this is really a, a medical issue. Uh, your, your, uh, medic, your, your background is highly complex. You're likely getting uh, various treatments, and it's best that you be seen by a medical doctor, preferably an ophthalmologist, who is familiar with um, cancer management, cancer diagnosis, and cancer therapies, especially uh, as we get newer and newer medications uh, that really ophthalmologists are familiar with as it relates to their potential uh, ocular toxicities. I think uh, so. So step number one is to bring this to the attention of your oncologist. Step two, try to make sure that you get a referral to an ophthalmologist, an MD, preferably someone who has uh, unique and specific uh, interest and care uh, in uh, managing patients who uh, have cancer uh, and uh, and and are used to managing those patients. Now. In preparation for that visit, uh, I would uh, certainly reinforce the importance of bringing all your medical history to the ophthalmologist. Um, again, this is a, a sort of a complex puzzle where we try to fit together your current cancer diagnosis, your current treatment, and your ophthalmic symptoms and problems. And to best do that, we really need to know some basic things. So always have ready and prepared Number one, your primary cancer diagnosis. And, and if you can be as specific as you can, uh, it's very helpful. So instead of just saying, I have breast cancer, it would be very significant if you said, I have stage two breast cancer, or I have adenocarcinoma of the lung stage three. Whatever it is, provide us with a level of medical detail, specifically the staging, because that helps guide us as to immediately what sort of issues and problems we may be looking at. The next critical step is to let us know the therapies that you have been involved with. So if you're currently getting chemotherapy, it's helpful, much more helpful for us if you say, uh, you know, I'm on adriamycin or uh, I'm on uh, trametinib than just saying I'm currently getting chemotherapy or immunotherapy because so many of the drugs that we're talking about have unique symptoms. And so not all drugs will impact the eye and the ocular structures in the same way. Don't forget 
about mentioning to us steroids. A lot of people don't think of it as chemotherapy, and it's not chemotherapy, but it's part of your management. And steroids can and do have an enormous impact on the eye. Uh, and in specifically, they uh, can very much um, induce or make worse uh, one's cataracts. So if you've been on steroids, even if you're no longer on steroids, but were on high-dose steroids previously, uh, particularly our patients, for instance, who uh, have had lymphomas, uh, that's very, very significant. And then the other treatment modality very relevant to us is radiation, particularly if there has been any radiation to uh, the front of the eye or around the eye, above the neck. And the reason is is because Radiation, even at very low doses, can induce uh, complications like dry eye and cataract. And so as the ophthalmologist is sort of putting all this information together, you will be best served by coming prepared to the visit with a clear uh, statement about what kind of cancer I have, what stage I have, what treatments have I have, what drugs have I been on, what is my doctor proposing to put me on? Sometimes the ophthalmologist is asked to clear you before you get on certain medications, especially some of our newer uh, um, targeted therapies. And so it's very important to give that history. And then finally also it's important when you present to the ophthalmologist to do what you would normally do, give a normal prior history of other ophthalmic issues you've had before you were diagnosed with cancer, if you've been diagnosed with cataracts, macular degeneration, dry eye. Very important to let us know if you've had a history of refractive surgery like LASIK because that can already give you a baseline dry eye. And then if there are any other uh, diseases or disorders that seem to run in your family related to the eye. So, for instance, if there's a strong predisposition for macular degeneration or glaucoma, those can be very, very relevant. Uh, and the reason is, is because once the ophthalmologist starts to see you, then they're going to start looking at certain things that are not uncommon in the cancer patient. So, for instance, cataracts. Cataracts can cause blurry vision. They often do. They, certain cataracts can be very problematic, particularly at night, and cause glare. Uh, those can be age-related, or those can be as a result of the treatments that you've been on. Again, uh, many drugs can cause them, but probably steroids are our biggest problem. Another common issue with blurry vision is just changes in the glasses prescription. Now, changes in the glasses prescription, again, in a cancer patient, can be far more complicated than if you just went and just went for a routine eye exam. Why? Well, you may be on certain medications like steroids, like other medications that are causing changes in your blood sugars, and those changes in blood sugars can induce changes in your glasses prescription. Sometimes the medications that you're on are causing dry eye and are causing uh, a change in how well you can use those glasses or your contact lenses and, and those sort of issues. Sometimes the pain medicine that you're on, and again, you wouldn't think, oh, I have to tell the eye doctor about the pain medicine that I'm on. Absolutely, because those pain medicines sometimes can impact how difficult or easy it is to see at near versus distance. And that gets into the whole complexity of whether it's worth getting a new pair of glasses or not, whether it's better to just hold off 
whether it's appropriate to not wear contact lenses during a certain period of time. And so increasingly what you're hearing from me is that this is a complex story. This is a complex situation, and you're best served by, number one, going to a care professional who is familiar with all these toxicities, familiar with all the regular things that people get anyway as we advance in age, familiar with why changes in glasses prescription and cataract and dry eye may occur. But then in, in that whole complexity, then factor in what are the likely reasons. Do you, as a cancer patient, are your visual problems really more related to the medications that the oncologist gave you, to an unrelated dry eye, or to a cataract that's age-related? And so at the end of that visit, hopefully you'll have an understanding of what are the likely reasons, some of which may be reversible, some of which may have to wait till after you're off your therapy, and then you can come up with a treatment plan directly uh, with your ophthalmologist. So I think that's the end of my time for this session, but I'll still remain on call and, and, and available to, to answer questions, Dr. Mester. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gumbel. That was really excellent and really really covered a lot of issues that people struggle with and find out there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, absolutely. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Miguel Matarin. Dr. Matarin is um, at the Duke Eye Center, Professor of Ophthalmology, Director Duke Center for Ophthalm Ophthalm Ophthalmic Oncology. And Dr. Matarin is going to address ophthalmology assessment and care before and after treatment, Recognizing, recognizing changes in vision and field division, photos and flashing lights, what to do, and how eye products may help you cope with eye and vision changes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Matterin. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, I would like to start my uh, my presentation with uh, two stories, and these will um, these examples will um, help everyone understanding how um, we, as um, cancer eye doctors, we understand. Um, what's going on um, most of the time with many, many cancer patients. Uh, patient A, uh, actually this happened last week, uh, a cousin of mine who had been treated for a colon cancer about two or three years ago. And she woke up um, one day last week uh, with decreased vision in one of her eyes. And what do you think her first thought was? Her first thought was, I have metastasis in the brain, and, and this is related to my cancer. Um, she went to the eye doctor. She, um, she had some eye issues not related to the cancer, not related to the medicines. Uh, she, had, um, hypo, she was hypotensive. Her blood pressure was down, and she had some visual pressure because her blood pressure was actually very low. That's example A. Example B, it's, uh, it's a 27-year-old um, man um, who came to the first visit uh, with his mother, who, who's a nurse. And he has several symptoms, eye symptoms, and was referred to our consult. And when I asked him and his mother, do you have any history of cancer, uh, they, said, they both said no. Uh, um, they said, well, I only have history of 
carcinoid. This is it's a type of um, cancer, that we, specific type of cancer, uh, but it is it is a cancer, and there were practically denying. Again, this is was a nurse. Uh, the, his mother was a nurse, and he had um, the, he had metastasis in in both eyes from his carcinoid, and which they did not consider cancer. Why am I sharing these uh, stories with you? Because uh, the spectrum is so wide. Um, cancer patients in general, um, if they have any type of uh, symptom, uh, many times they relate the, those symptoms to the cancer. Uh, very, very few times, unless they were informed, they relate those symptoms to the medicines they're taking or any other problems. Like Dr. Gombo said, um, they may, they, maybe they have not checked their uh, vision or her, their glasses in two or three years. And, and, and common sense will say, well, I have blurry vision. Uh, what is more common? It's um, the cancer going to the brain or going to the eye, or this is I have not checked my prescription in the past two or three years. So um, if we are going to um, classify and how cancer can affect the eye, I would, I would like to divide this in, uh, in different items. Number one, um, Tumors, to, tumors that happen first in the eye, um, which I'm, I'm sure this is not the topic today. Second, um, some type of systemic cancer that can have impact on the eyes, um, producing metastasis to the eye. That can happen. Um, and third um, is any treatment that was done for those uh, type of cancers, either the, the primary away from the eye or the uh, tr treatment done to the tumors in the eye causing side effects uh, on the eyes. Dr. Gombos mentioned that it is very important that your providers uh, know about these topics. Um, we've been seeing, um, we've been in this new era of uh, the new modality of treatment that um, they're helping lots and lots of patients uh, surviving their cancers or extending their lives. Um, and and I'm, I'm including here not the target therapies, the immunotherapies, etc. Um, in, in, and this is a very important factor. Um, one of the topics that um, it's on, on my presentation is floaters. Floaters are maybe one of the most common symptoms in ophthalmology. And floaters um, can be in any normal person uh, because of aging, because of myopia, um, uh, because of trauma. Um, I myself, I've been having a floater since 1995 after uh, a trauma to one of my eyes. Uh, it can prelude, uh, preclude um, uh, a retinal detachment and or can be um, uh, one of the symptoms uh, from the cancer drugs or can be one of the symptoms from uh, metastasis to the eye. Uh, but common sense should come first. What is more common and what should I do? Well, number one is, yes, going to the eye doctor, dilated eye exam, and in, in two or three minutes, the doctor can say, well, there is no tumor in your eye. Um, there is aging. Um, there are floaters in the other eye. You have not seen them. And uh, you just need to check on these once a week, uh, initially for a month, and then um, every six months. Um, 
And, and, and again, this is um, some of the, circum the most common circumstances that can happen on any person, not just on cancer persons. Um, now, if we uh, talk a little bit about these new drugs, immunotherapy, uh, that is a different topic. And here is why. Um, maybe one of the most common symptoms that it was mentioned before um, are, is the dry eye. Yes, no problem. Now, but it can be serious, and it can be. Uh, it needs to be monitored, because most of the time, most of the time, and please, I don't want anyone to panic um, here. I want again to to have common sense in this situation. Most of the time, it's just dry eye. Now. Um, can can the cornea, which is the, the lens in front of the eye, be perforated? Yeah, I've seen that once. Now, how many patients um, are being treated with this type of drugs, and how many will have a perforation of the cornea? One, maybe in thousands. It's not that common, but has to be monitored. Um, inflammation in the eye. Uh, there are different types of inflammation, and the, the eye has different... Um, structures. Uh, one of the structures of the eye is called uvea, U-V-E-A. And the uvea has, um, it's, is the part of the, uh, the eye that brings blood to the eye. Um, the, the inflammation of the uvea is called uveitis. When it happens, this inflammation in the front of the eye is called anterior uveitis, and when it's in the in behind the retina, it's called posterior uveitis. And the severity is different most of the time when we compare the anterior uveitis, which is um, more benign than the posterior uveitis. These patients, you know, that's when the ophthalmologist has to communicate with the oncologist, and this has to be monitored very closely. Uh, not all, all, always need to stop the, um, the cancer medicine. Uh, sometimes it has, it has to be delayed, uh, but local treatment many times is sufficient. In more advanced cases, the, um, the oncologist will hold on on this drug that is keeping the patient alive temporary to allow the treatment of the, the serious inflammation, if it happens, in the eye, and then resume the medicine. Um, so, and, and that can, the first manifestation can be floaters, once again, or blurry vision. Once again, there are non-specific symptoms. Um, but I think that the most important to me is uh, to describe today is um, when the patients ha the patient has uh severe symptoms um like sees uh, very and very unusual symptoms um i see windows that are opening and closing or i see a door opening and closing or i see this kind of lightning that is very unusual etc and the patient goes to the ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist uh take does an eye exam and the eye exam is normal so I think that what um, we need to know about it is that uh, most of the time, yes, the, everything is normal, but sometimes can be serious. And that's why at least um, on, um, and on specialized centers, uh, we bring the patient back, um, let's say in 48 to 72 hours. But the education here is that 
if those symptoms increase or these or those symptoms get worse at any time they, they should, the patients should have a low threshold to go to the emergency room and to have the eyes checked again once again these are unusual symptoms uh, very hard to describe you go to the ophthalmologist the eye exam is normal and that's okay it will be normal but Please have a low threshold to come back to the ophthalmologist or to go to the emergency room if those symptoms got worse or there is any decrease in vision or anything that is unusual. Um, and well, it's my 10 minutes are up, so um, I'll be happy to answer any questions. I, I have more time to be here, but uh, once again, uh, I emphasize on common sense. Uh, any person um, who has a headache and does not have an MRI of the first step, uh, they will maybe take uh, medication first. They will go to the doctor. It can be attention. Um, uh, it can be stress. It can be many things and not a brain tumor. Um, sometimes, um, the, which is not as common, is the opposite. It can be serious. As please, common sense come first. I don't know, Carolyn, if I'll, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Matter, and that was really outstanding and really wonderful and lots of good information for everybody to have and um, and to actually that, that comes, the concept of common sense with all this information so that you know a bit more than you perhaps knew before, and this is really wonderful. And our next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edlund, and Ms. Edlund is um, director of our online programs at Cancer Care, and Ms. Edlund is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Edlund. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I'd like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and their loved ones and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that may arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York area, as well as telephone and online support groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this all means for you and your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. 
please remember that you are not alone. Cancer Care Services are there to help. So please do consider contacting us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Evelyn. That was wonderful and very informative in terms of all the services that people can access from Cancer Care. And now we have time for questions. And we want to thank our speakers. We have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of our speakers on board and actually to um, explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. We have some questions already coming in, but we want to be sure everybody has a chance to, to ask a question. So I think we we'll explain to everybody how to queue up, and we'll take as many questions as we can. And if we don't get to your question, I'll give you information about how to get your questions answered at the very end of the call as well. But let's see if we can't take them all right now. Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question is from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Caroline. This is an excellent, excellent seminar. I have several questions. The first question I have is I did have chemo 11 years ago, and I had steroids, and I did have adromycin, cytoxin, and taxol, and I did have cataracts, and I was told the cataracts came from the steroids. I had a second cataract in the right eye with laser therapy. My question is with that, can you get a second cataract in the other eye, the left eye, and can you get a third cataract from this? And also, i like to know about tattoos for eye. You didn't mention anything about getting tattoos for the eye, you know, if you have eyeliner or eyebrow tattoos. How dangerous is that with the toxins if you have to get MRIs later on? Okay. And, no, thank, uh, you. thank you. Thanks, thanks very much, Stephanie. Um, and Dr. Gumbos, could you address those questions um, in yeah, a general absolutely. way? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So, first of all, um, uh, it, it's always difficult to know for certain why someone developed a cataract. However, certainly if we have someone on steroids for a long time and they develop a particular type of cataract, we call it a posterior subcapsular cataract from a technical perspective, it's more common, it's more likely than not that those cataracts were in fact induced by the high-dose steroids. Now, the fortunate thing about cataracts, if there is something that's fortunate, is that we have a wonderful and very safe and effective surgical procedure to remove them, and that's done routinely by ophthalmologists hundreds if not thousands of times a day throughout the United States and around the world. Now, the concept of a secondary cataract is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, the cataract really doesn't come back. What happens is cataract surgery, the way it's performed, we purposefully leave the back layer of the lens, the natural lens, in place when we put the synthetic uh, lens in front of it. And what happens not infrequently is, is that that back layer then becomes opacified. And the way that's treated is with a form of laser therapy to open up that remaining tissue. And that's common. It's, it's not related necessarily to your cancer per se. It's really just a sequelae of having the cataract in the first place. And if you've had it in one eye, it's certainly possible that the same process will happen in another eye and equally can be quite simply addressed with a laser if necessary. There isn't really such a thing as a third cataract because at that point all the lens material has been removed. 
Excellent. Um, super. Thank you so much. And uh, we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, uh, I'm going to give this question um, to uh, Dr. Matterin. Are eyelash growth enhancing products safe for patients on, uh, on treatment um, and everyone else in general? I don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't expect that question, uh, but no, I, I don't know the answer. So um, it, it depends, I think, and this is personal opinion, this is not a scientific answer. Um, you know, um, if if you if someone has been used that product or the product is available um, and this is not some type of um, unusual situation, uh, I don't think those I don't think that any type of those um, um, things will will cause any any cancer or any any problems like that. So, but um, again, I don't know a scientific answer to that. I can I can jump in if you want. Okay. Okay, sure. Uh, you know, it's so common that, that people lose their lashes for various reasons. Radiation is, is, is a common one. Chemotherapy administration is another. And as was pointed out by one of the other speakers, uh, lashes do uh, frequently grow back, but they may not grow back with the same intensity, vigor. Sometimes they will, in fact, grow in uh, and grow in various directions that needs to be addressed. Now, there is commercially available a drop that was initially developed for glaucoma. And what they found was was that it had a uh, side effect uh, that uh, led to uh, uh, lengthening and growing eyelashes. And some patients have on occasion used those. And I have seen patients prescribe it. I haven't personally prescribed it, but I've seen patients prescribe it. And as long as there are no other contraindications, I've not seen necessarily a problem from that. Again, it's a medication used in the setting of glaucoma, so it's certainly something that is safe around the eye. And what you usually do is you apply it more to the eyelid as opposed to the eyeball itself. This also goes back to the issue that I didn't get a chance to answer about the tattooing. So there is there's a, a long history of patients tattooing their eyelid margins to avoid the need for mascara. And uh you know patients who have those in general they can still get MRIs, although you always want to review that with the radiologist. Um, I am very concerned, as I think the field of ophthalmology is, about people tattooing their eyeballs. And that is an exceptionally dangerous concept that no one should undertake. Um, now, as it relates to any sort of lid tattooing, I'm always concerned about the risks of infection. I'm always concerned about who is doing that tattooing, under what circumstances, and I certainly would not want someone who is already potentially immunocompromised by virtue of the chemotherapy that they're on or their regular immune state to put themselves potentially in an environment that is less than ideal with the, a risk of infection uh, to, to undergo that sort of procedure. So uh, I would generally discourage anyone from doing things that would put their eye or visual structures at risk for infection, and and would and would discourage the latter. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Matter, do you want to add to that in any way? I didn't 
I was into where that people were actually tattooing their eyeball itself. But um, did Dr. Madden, did you want to comment or further? Or? No, well, tattooing. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with Dr. Uh, Gambas. Uh, so uh, w I think that um, let's talk once again about common sense. One thing is um, well, circumstances when when the problem comes to you, and the other circumstances are when we're looking for a problem. So um, I, I'm more like if if there is no problem, don't look for it. And I think that under um, these circumstances uh, and uncertainty and lack of, you know, full knowledge about all these, uh, why put things at risk? Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And I think we have a question from our telephone participants. Is that um, correct, uh, um, Ayala? Yes. Our next question is from Yvonne B. Your line is now open. If your phone is on mute, please unmute it. I'm sorry. <clears throat> yes, I was wondering if you could uh, first off thank all of you for answering these questions and for cancer care. Um, I was wondering if someone could tell us again what to look for that would be different if you're not on chemo and you have uh, a bladder cancer because um, it could metastasize to the eye or to the brain. What we'd look for, the symptoms again, could you go over that please? Well, um, so um, let let's let's organize this because the uh, the answer is going to be uh, wide and will not it's impossible to include all the possibilities that are in here um if i if i need to summarize this in in the 10 or 15 seconds that we, we may have is like um we're not looking for any symptoms uh, the symptoms should come to us. Um, I, we, we, in general, I tell all my patients, don't start covering your eye every every five minutes and, and see if your eye one eye is, is different than the other one. Uh, don't don't look for do I have a headache or I don't have a headache. Am I have looking? No, no, no. The symptoms will come um, to you, and and I think that um, as I mentioned um, in the beginning of my my conversation was like um, patients who have cancer most of the time I never use the word the word well um, always or never but in this case I will um, uh, most of the time uh, patients with history of cancer any symptoms that they may have will they will try to relay them to their cancer and that might not be the case so um, even a person with history of cancer decreased vision is not a sign of metastasis um, and any person with cancer uh, floater is not a sign of complication from the cancer uh, what we're trying to emphasize uh, today is like if there is any new symptom in a person with cancer or without a cancer just go to the eye doctor and have your eyes checked. And the doctor will tell you, the eye doctor will tell you, okay, this might be related to the cancer or to the treatment. We need to have your oncologist involved. We'll communicate with him or with her, and that's when things will start. So um, there is nothing pathognomonic, there is nothing specific that will uh, correlate any eye symptom with a specific history of cancer. 
That's very helpful. And it sounds like it's really very helpful for everyone on the call to have um, a consistent um, ophthalmologist. Actually, somebody did ask the difference between an optometrist and ophthalmologist in terms of who would be able to best notice any issues with their eyes. And I wonder if you could just address that, um, Dr. Madden, just in terms of that everyone should have an eye, eye doctor yes. that they have. That, yes. So um, um, an ophthalmologist is a medical doctor um, who um, went through all the uh, school medicine and then have um, a residency in ophthalmology and then most of the time had a fellowship in one of the specialties in ophthalmology and then dedicates the time as, as a physician uh, to take care of the eye exam. Optometrist um, is different. Uh, they did not go. They don't go through the um, uh, um, school medicine, and 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 they are um, trained to do eye exams. Um, they can treat um, some eye conditions, and, and and again, there are some that are very very good, like any doctor, and, and there they are not uh, capable of doing that. So. If, um, at least in my experience, when there is a serious problem, uh, the optometrist uh, will do the screening, can do the eye exam, can identify that something is not going right, but they will refer the patient to the ophthalmologist. Excellent. Okay. Um, and our next question, Ayala? Our next question is from Deborah D. Your line is now open. Hi, um, I actually have a question in regards to some family members who are undergoing chemo. And the question is, if a person already has cataracts prior to chemotherapy, is there anything that can be done while they're doing or uh, while they're doing therapy to slow down the progression? That was my first question on that. If um, another person has already knows they have damaged optic optic nerve damage is there anything that can slow that down and the third one is that after chemo is ended how long should it be before the person goes back to the ophthalmology for another examination so that's a question well i'm going to start with dr gumpos but probably dr madden will also want to add to this as well um dr no Gumpos? well that, these are sort of outstanding and very relevant questions and i think it sort of ties into the complexity that Dr. Matterin was also referring to because it's going to be your ophthalmologist who can not only address the issue of the cataract but then tie that in to the management of your overall cancer care by interacting directly with the medical oncologist or radiation oncologist. So normally we think of cataract surgery and cataracts as something that is elective, meaning when the time is right and the patient has the appropriate symptoms, time is made for surgery to address this issue. And in most instances, the need for cancer management is more significant, more timely. It sort of uh, is the uh, issue that's up front that needs to be addressed for the overall care of the patient. Sometimes in severely debilitating situations where cataracts are so advanced that patients can't take care of their own basic functions, walk, eat, see, those sort of things, then we will make an interaction with the medical oncologist to perhaps alter uh, administration uh, of the uh, chemotherapy or other treatments. But in general, 
our goal is to be supportive during the treatments of therapy, during the treatments of chemotherapy, and then once things have been addressed and the patient is off of chemotherapy or there's a break in the chemotherapy, then work with the patient to determine if the cataracts are bad enough that they require surgical intervention and then the safest and best time to do that. And it's not infrequent at our institution where uh, there is an interaction between the surgeon and the medical oncologist. Well, maybe this particular patient needs a break from chemotherapy so that we can do the surgery safely. Remember, chemotherapy not infrequently can impact, may impact the white count, which fights infection, and the red count, which is associated with bleeding. We don't want any of those to have an increased risk from cataract surgery. We want it to be a very safe and effective procedure. And so sometimes we will work with those teams to determine an effective period of time that they can hold off on the systemic therapies, but yet not negatively impact their risk of of cancer per se. Now, certainly if you have a predisposing issue like an optic nerve problem or something like that, those are one of the scenarios where it's terribly important to see an ophthalmologist before therapy so that your medical oncologist understands the visual issues from the ophthalmologist. Why is this vision decreased? Is it from other treatments? Is it from prior radiation? Is it from a familial problem? Is it something that predisposes this patient? Because that might impact which drugs the oncologist will consider for his or her therapy. Uh, So it's terribly important that if you have a predisposing problem to make sure that, number one, you get a thorough ophthalmic assessment, you know exactly why that problem is, because there are many types of optic nerve problems, and that that be communicated between the ophthalmologist and the medical oncologist. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Madden, do you want to add anything? Um, Yes, I think that... um, Everyone should understand the priorities, okay? And even sometimes for uh, non-ophthalmologists, uh, it's, it's hard for, to understand that too. Uh, because uh, sometimes it feels like um, people think that uh, the eye is not part of their body. And the eye, it is part of the body. The same blood that goes to the eye, it goes to the, uh, to the toe and to the brain. So it is part of the body. And when we talk about priorities, I think that um, everyone should put, um, in, in, and, and again, this should be a, a, a conversation with, with the uh, um, physician, is life comes first, eye come, comes second, and vision comes third. And you're not going to go the other way around because, um, I, I, once again, we're going back to the common sense. So if the patient needs the treatment for the cancer uh, to survive, so um, as as Dr. Gombos mentioned, uh, cataract 99% of the time or 99.9% of the time is an elective elective, uh, surgery. It's not an emergency. And the time for the cataract surgery can be managed. So uh, when 
um, we're talking about quality of life, and it's so important for the patient to read, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so uh, control the cancer first, and uh, we'll have the cataract surgery second. Um, if it's, there is a need uh, for different reasons that don't come to my mind right now, well, then it will be um, uh, a team conversation how to prepare and how to handle and how to uh, pri prioritize you know, the, uh, the next steps. Thank you. This is really it's wonderful questions and really very thoughtful and wonderful answers as well. Um, so I have a question that's similar to a question that was asked before, but there's a little slightly different um, piece to it. So it's an online question. Let me just bring it up. Um, uh, um, so um, I'm going to start this question with Dr. Um, Matterand. Um, I, ha um, I had a reaction to a, men a meningitis meningitis vaccine while hospitalized and being diagnosed with two kinds of lymphoma. This caused optic nerve damage, and I'm wondering if there is any treatment for this. I have had cataract surgery to both eyes with some improvement. So again, this is a very individual question, which we do ask you to go back to your healthcare team, particularly your ophthalmology team and your medical, your oncology team, your lymphoma team. But if, Dr. Matter, if you could just comment on this in a general way, that might help others on the call who have similar concerns, but and then they can they would perhaps well could ask a more informed question of their healthcare team if they um get a little bit of more information. Yeah, I didn't understand the second part of the question related to the cataract. I understood that the first one um, with the vaccine and the optic nerve yeah, damage. I, I think the person just added this to say that they had had cataract surgery to both eyes with some improvement. It was kind of like an add on. The major question is the um uh the the um the optic nerve damage and wondering if there's any treatment for this based on, I guess, um, the reaction to the meningitis vaccine while hospitalized and being diagnosed with two kinds of lymphoma. Well, um, we uh, I think that there are uh, two different topics there. One is the lymphoma, the other one is the meningitis vaccine. Um, and I think it depends on the optic nerve damage and the cause for the optic nerve damage. And I think that um, um, another subspecialty should be um, involved, and that it's a neuro-ophthalmologist uh, who can evaluate uh, the optic nerve damage and the uh, severity of it and the chances to recover. Um, and the second question was related to cataract again? I just having had successful cataract, had I've had cataract surgery in both eyes with some improvement, so some improvement. That oh, and the, so had cataract surgery and there was no um, improvement in vision. Is that is that the question? It sounds like there was some improvement. So some improvement. Um, it, it just says the question just says with some improvement. Um, so. Um, if, if the patient, so um, the, the cataract, um, w what is the cataract? Um, we all have a, a small lens inside the eye, right? And there are two important lenses that we have uh, in, on the eye. One is the cornea that is in the front of the eye, and the other one is the, the lens that is inside the eye. When, uh, because of aging, trauma, 
diabetes or many other uh, reasons, steroids, uh, this uh, lens inside the eye and gets uh, cloudy. That's when um, we start seeing symptoms related to the cataract. But the lens is not the only reason, or this is not the only structure that can cause uh, decrease in vision, blurry vision, or other symptoms. Uh, we have a gel behind it that's called uh, vitreous. Uh, lymphoma, as an example, can affect the vitreous, uh, and people will see lots of floaters, flashing, and, and, and some cloudiness. Uh, behind the gel, we have the retina. Lymphoma can affect the retina. The optic nerve is just the wire that sends the information received from the the retina uh, to communicate to the uh, uh, to the brain. Uh, so, as, um, once again, um, an excellent cataract surgery and um, very successful uh, cataract surgery, and the patient may not see better, and that can be because other reasons. Uh, or um, the patient has the cataract surgery, and it only solves the problem related to the cataract, but not if there was a problem with, um, with other structures of the eye. I don't know if that answers the question. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and it helps others to think about these, the details that you provided. So thank you very much. And, and also to be aware that there are other specialties in ophthalmology. So I don't think that was helpful. If you could just say a little bit more about the neuro-ophthalmologist, because we've never really discussed that before on the call, and that would be really helpful for people to know a bit more about. Well, I think, you know, what getting to Dr. Matarana saying is, is that um, – it, it can be exceptionally complex when you have multiple issues that might be impacting vision. And all of us work as a team. And so there are many subspecialties in ophthalmology. There's oncology, there's retina, there's, there's dry eye cataracts, there are optic nerve doctors, we call them neuro-ophthalmologists. And so... Um, it may be helpful for patients to understand that they may have to see a number of specialist eye doctors to sometimes truly understand why the vision is affected because there is a complex relationship between all the substructures of the eye, the brain, the treatments that are going on, the predisposing issues. Here's a patient who clearly had malignancy but also was given some other therapies that might have impacted vision. And so sometimes to tease those out, you may have to see a series of subspecialists within ophthalmology, and that may be uh, uh, challenging to the patient or frustrating to the patient, but they have to understand that we have to work through a long list of potential reasons why the vision is, inf is affected. And again, it gets back to... Um, you know, what happened before the cancer, what happened during the cancer, and which of the therapies during and after cancer may or may not be the etiology. Thank you. And, and I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. Um, of all the calls we've done on this topic, this has been the most amazing in terms of the questions that have been asked and, of course, the depth of the answers that have been provided. So I want to thank all of you on this call. Today. I particularly want to thank our speakers, of course, um, for their expertise and their compassion during this call and, and, and knowledge. I want to thank all of you who asked such great questions. I mean, your questions are really amazing and um, obviously very thoughtful questions and, um, and clearly um, demonstrating the great need for this program. 
and um, all of you have been listening as well. Now, um, we're almost at the end of the call, so I do want to actually go over a few things with you. I know there are still some questions that have yet to be answered, so I want to, first of all, address this issue up front. Um, so for those of you who still have questions that have not been answered or addressed at this point, I do recommend, first of all, of course, always your healthcare team, and even for the call, even those who had questions asked today, of course, your healthcare team are the very best people to go because they know your situation. That includes, of course, the ophthalmology team as well, and all the subspecialties as well that may be needed. In addition, some of you do like to go to other places for information, um, like to get information even on the, on the call today, so you can ask more informed questions of your healthcare team. And so I do suggest that you also um, have in your list of places to contact the National Cancer Institute. The number is 1-800-422-6237. That information will be sent to all of you when you get the evaluation for today's program. In addition to that, they have a wonderful website, www.cancer.gov, and they have a feature, it's a live chat feature, where you can just simply post your question, and the information specialists will get back to you. So that's really nice for people who like doing this, as well as for people internationally, who the website could be a very great um, access to information um, for you. Um, and um, the other, um, so that those are some institutions that you can go to to get some additional information and then bring it always back to your healthcare team who actually know you the very best. Also, if those of you, any of you would like to access any of the services from Cancer Care in terms of whether it be the um, financial or practical assistance or just a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers here at Cancer Care or join one of our online support groups or telephone support groups, I would very much encourage you to then go ahead and call Cancer Care. 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at um, www.cancercare.org. And again, you'll get all that. The resource information will come to you um, with the evaluation forms. You'll have all those resources that are out there. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want all, all of you to know that you're not alone. One of the things that we worry about when people when the call ends, we don't want people to think, oh no, now I'm all by myself again. You're not alone. You are now part of this really large community of support and resources. Um, you saw on the materials we sent you before the call all the different organizations that have all kinds of information that could be helpful to you as well as your healthcare team. Um, and uh, when in doubt, don't hesitate to call our staff here who can help to refer you or to help you directly with particular needs that you may have. So thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.